uh, and even in the college themselves, that they're no longer, they don't have that reputation anymore. They're seen as the enemy of, of patients' rights. And so uh, I do think when that reaches a critical mass, they're going to need to lose their authority, in my opinion. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom Feature, and I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, I have a number of special guests, individuals that have become very well known throughout this country as a result of the stands that they've been taken with respect to the public health orders in this country and who have paid a personal price. And so it's important for us, I think, all of us here in Canada to understand what is happening uh, people think the pandemic is over. Well, let me tell you, for these physicians who are here with us today, the pandemic is ongoing in the sense the effects of the pandemic are ongoing in their own practices. And with me today, I have Michael Alexander, who is their legal counsel in the special cases that are ongoing right now. And Michael, it's a pleasure to have you. And I just want to say, everyone on the panel, thank you for joining us. But Michael, I would like you to tell us what's happening. Thanks, Barry. Uh, all the colleges of physicians in, across the country have the same restrictions on the practice of medicine. And the three restrictions are uh, that you cannot say anything contrary to public health uh, recommendations and policies. You may not write medical exemptions for COVID-19 injections, except in extreme circumstances. And you may not prescribe Health Canada approved medications that can be used uh, as alternative treatments um, and uh, modes of prevention for COVID-19. And uh, the problem with these restrictions is that they're not based in law. They are recommendations, they are guidelines. We are fighting this in British Columbia with Dr. Hoff, we're fighting this in Ontario with Drs. Phillips, uh, Lodgeku and Trozzi. So we have, we have made the argument, uh, both in the courts and before the college, uh, that uh, these so-called recommendations cannot be enforced as standards of practice. So what the colleges are doing is saying they're taking these recommendations, pretending as if they are codified standards of practice, and then they are prosecuting uh, the doctors, not just my clients, many others, on the basis that they have violated um, the standard of practice of the profession. So, uh, so, so what we have essentially is, is an extraordinary overreach on the part of the administrative state. I mean, this is bureaucratic tyranny. It's the real thing. And it's been going on in Ontario with the college for 30 years, but it has gotten much worse uh, during the so-called pandemic. Because the colleges, and in particular, the Ontario College, um, the, the colleges are the enforcement arms of the governments. So uh, the governments can kind of step back just as they do with the public health officers and let them do the dirty work. Um, they have to do with the colleges. And so the colleges are enforcing these restrictions with a view to supporting government policy uh, on COVID matters. So we are arguing not only that these restrictions are based in law, but that they are contrary to basic principles of administrative law. For those who don't know about administrative law, it's the law that governs the relationship between citizens and their government. And we, all, we also argue um, that these restrictions are contrary to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and in particular, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of conscience. So um, I can't imagine a case, actually, that brings in so many uh, fundamental freedoms 
that brings them into play and uh, where we are asking adjudicators and courts to vindicate those freedoms. Um, and uh, so we're waiting on a decision right now from a motion hearing with the college where we made all of these arguments. It is a called a pre-hearing motion. We brought a motion to say you cannot uh, take our doctors to a discipline hearing if you're in violation of, of, of fundamental laws, and in particular the charter. Mm. So we essentially asked the college to dismiss the charges. And then I have Dr. Luchku in a different stream going now to the Ontario Court of Appeal on judicial review, where we are arguing um, a whole range of, of issues under uh, administrative law. So we have two tracks here, uh, one with the college, one in the court system, arguing um, on different standards of review in the hope that we might get a breakthrough here and not only vindicate our doctors in Ontario, but in doing so, vindicate doctors all across the country. Wow, that's, well, I mean, it sounds like to me that you've really put together a very uh, powerful argument and a wonderful strategy in trying to deal with this. And as we as we step back and we and we look at the situation that we're finding ourselves, I, I, I look at, uh, I think the, the public at large needs to understand exactly what kind of activity is going on. Because as you pointed out, this is a situation where the college is taking the view that, okay, they have the authority to impose uh, these restrictions. And, and, and I, I just wonder if I could open it up here uh, to anyone here on the panel. I have never... Um, seen this kind of activity of a college in its treatment of directing um, procedures or the practice of medicine uh, to this degree. It's kind of like, uh, you know, you hear the term micromanaging. It's almost like uh, there's a micromanaging going on. And I'm just wondering if, if anyone wants to uh, share with our viewers um, as you look back at the big picture here, what is happening? How is it that the college thinks it has the ability uh, to be micromanaging the practice of medicine? So for people to understand this, you have to understand the global corruption to understand the local corruption. And you can come at this from a lot of angles, but let's, let's, just, let's just look at a couple of the really big clues to the crime. All of us around the world are taxed and without any voluntary element or any strings attached, our governments hand massive quantities of money to the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization also gets money from predominantly Bill Gates through various organizations, but that money has strings attached. So though all of us are paying the World Health Organization, Bill Gates gets to actually dictate to the World Health Organization because his half of the money is, uh, they call it voluntary. Now, for him, that's just an investment because as he's pointed out early on in the pandemic or scamdemic, he made a 21 times return on his investment into these injections that are killing people and maiming people and sterilizing people and are being misrepresented as safe and effective vaccines when they're actually very dangerous. And we're learning more and more by design, dangerous genetic injections. So 
that now dr tam teresa tam she is uh in my opinion i consider her a double agent because both has she been operating in our federal government as overviewing healthcare practices but she's also on the guiding committee of the world health organization along with the very nefarious dr tedros so you can see how you have this top-down approach the world health organization quite fraudulently declares a pandemic and then they begin mandating a variety of things around the world and that's why you see this global pattern where such ridiculous and extreme things and such abusive human rights are happening all around the world um, so that comes down from federal through to provincial and then of course the colleges well they are the local hand of the globalists on the people in the case of ontario the cpso is the local globalist hand and now myself i've been uh, emergency doctor for more than 25 years and I've been uh, a teacher of critical resuscitation and trauma medicine for a decade so when you see things rolling out that are completely falsely represented like for instance the injections when you see things that are harming people um, and and yet the college is really walking lockstep with this whole program and um, and they've they've imposed such severe restrictions and they're not like like michael said they've said they've made such severe suggestions so the trick then for us doctors became like usually the college's job is is actually to stop the sort of things that they're enforcing bad medicine but in this current situation what we faced is um you know prior to the launch of COVID, we could follow the golden rule and follow the Hippocratic Oath and follow international norms and regulations and provincial and federal norms and regulations and the college's rules. All those things tell you to do the things that we're doing. Tell the truth, treat a disease, don't give people coarse misrepresented injections, etc. So, but strangely, since the college has done their part <clears throat> with the, the whole program, which is really a global crime against humanity, uh, we've had to choose. So are we going to be real doctors? Are we going to follow the Hippocratic Oath? Are we going to be real decent Christians, Buddhists, or Muslims and follow the golden rule? Um, or are we going to go along with the college, join the gravy train, make a lot of money off this whole COVID agenda and all the extra little bits of money you can make doing it? Well, clearly, you're looking at three of us, <clears throat> along with actually hundreds across the country and thousands across the world, uh, who said no. So that's where we are. And, you know, it's not just, I just want to mention, for sure it's bad for us. I mean, we like their jobs and we like uh, making a living and things like that at our job. But the, the real victims here are the people of the country, because if the college is able to force, either force doctors out of practice who will remain ethical and scientific and keep in practice doctors who will go along with an agenda, which is really violation of a lot of rules, a lot of very important rules about what you do to people, um then where does that leave the people of this province and the people of this country you have no access to a doctor who will be honest with you or who will do something as simple as read the ingredients on the injection and tell you what's in it it's that simple you read the ingredients on those injections alone so the people of our country in a dire strait we're being offered jobs around the world to go to the few places that are you know up, up like maintaining human rights because we're like highly desired in that respect but we're trying to stay here and take care of the people of our country and fight for them. So this is really a fight for the people. It's a fight for us too, but this is a fight for the people. You know, I certainly appreciate, 
appreciate that uh, statement of, um, you know, being willing to stay here. I, I understand a number of people, uh, friends of mine, in fact, who have decided to pack up and literally leave this country. It's uh, mind boggling to me of how many people I know who've done that. Um, and, and, you know, they have families that they're concerned about. They've lost their jobs and all of that. And so I, I understand. Uh, but um, I think it's also important for us uh, to, to stay here in Canada and, and uh, keep the fight going, you know, fight the good fight, as they say. Sorry, uh, Dr. Hoff, you, you were going to uh, mention, and uh, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Trozzi. Yes, thank you, Barry. Um, Mark's given a, a really good sort of global overview of it, and thank you, Mark, for that. Barry, you asked about the question of the college micromanaging doctors, and I think that is a really important and, and interesting concept to think about. One of the things, well, firstly, just to echo what, what uh, Dr. Trozzi has said, um, the, the, the job of the colleges is, is simply a regulatory body. They are supposed to ensure that doctors are appropriately qualified and practice medicine in an ethical and safe manner. They are not an academic institution. They're not a scientific body. They're simply a group of regulators. And they've always made it clear that they do not tell doctors how to manage their patients because they don't know the patient. The patient is not their patient. They don't they are not part of the therapeutic relationship between the doctor and the patient. They're simply the regulatory body that makes sure that that doctor is appropriately qualified and that what he's doing will not harm the public. So, so as a result, they put out what, what uh, uh, Michael mentioned, effectively clinical practice guidelines. In other words, broad um, suggestions of how doctors um, may choose to, 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 to treat their or manage their patients based on current scientific information. But because scientific information is always evolving, the facts of science are never settled. Science is always a work in progress. And so doctors are supposed to practice evidence-based medicine where they constantly are examining new evidence and and, and within the, the unique therapeutic relationship that they have with each patient to decide what the best course of action for that particular patient might be. So the college has now changed completely. The, the college is supposed to protect the public. And as Mark has said, they've become the opposite of what they are supposed to be because they have become profoundly unethical. It is never appropriate for people to have forced injections. And, and not only is it, I mean, this is the Supreme Court of Canada ruling from 1980. The principle of informed consent is binding by law. And yet the colleges have fired their own employees, at least here in British Columbia. I don't know about other problems. They have fired their own employees who refuse to be vaccinated, which, which is, which is a, a complete violation of that that code of ethics that is that is set in place by the Supreme Court, and by the the you know the college holds every doctor in Canada or the colleges across Canada hold all doctors accountable to the code of ethics of the Canadian Medical Association, which further entrenches the principle of informed consent. Nobody should ever be forced to have a medical test or a medical treatment that they do not want. 
and and then of course when you know one of the things that i'm accused of for for this cr new crime of misinformation which is a whole different topic i mean that's scientifically absurd um is for example saying that ivermectin i've said that ivermectin is an effective treatment for covid and you're not allowed to say that even though there are almost 200 scientific studies on the subject of which I think it's now 143 are peer reviewed, which show massive evidence for the effectiveness of COVID. But doctors are now not allowed to practice evidence-based medicine. They have to blindly obey the college who will tell them what they, how they're going to manage that patient. And so this is a strange time where, where the colleges have, have become the opposite of what they're supposed to be. And, and wherever somebody declares um, or, or punishes someone else for so-called scientific misinformation, that person clearly doesn't understand the scientific process. You know, there was a time when Galileo was given a gag order. He was put under investigation and eventually under house arrest for claiming that the earth was not the center of the universe. This was, he was literally punished in order to so-called protect the public from this dangerous misinformation. The people who did that to them didn't know what they didn't know. And that is why it is so important to allow free scientific debate, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience. That is the lifeblood of our democracy. But unfortunately, that seems to be rapidly being eroded. You know, it's interesting. You point out, you know, things that they didn't know. But is it a case? Like, I mean, I would hate to even venture the thought and yet the thought has come to me um i mean is it just simply that uh these regulators are just are, are absolutely convinced that they are right um like i mean like i i'd hate to i'd hate to um impute malfeasance right i i mean i would hate to say that they're being um they, they they know the difference and but really and and then it, it causes all of us um and and i guess this is why the public is so concerned um is because on the one hand you you naturally would assume that individuals in such authoritative positions are interested in the public good i mean this is their whole basis, right? The public interest, whether it's the judiciary, whether it's government, whether it's, in this case, the regulators of the of the medical profession. Any yeah, if I could that? chime in on that. Yep. Yeah, I think to follow up on on some uh, of Charles's excellent comments of uh, Galileo or even Copernicus, um, it's interesting. He was they were punished not because necessarily that. Um, uh, the church authorities uh, didn't believe uh, that the earth was the center of the, uh, sorry, that the sun was the center of the solar system, but it fundamentally came down to power. Um, the whole idea that the earth was not the center of, of the universe would throw into question um, a lot of the philosophies and especially church power, right? Like that there's some other center 
uh, and that mankind is not the center of God's creation. So that could undermine the trust in the church or, or, or other fundamental authorities. And I think that's a little bit about what we're running into here. If you look at, um, in my opinion, a, a lot of what the colleges consider safe care is obedient care because they see their role as controlling the profession to ensure that there's no violations of, of professional codes or, or other things like, or, or their dictates or, or uh, their unmet expectations. They set expectations and they believe they uh, need to believe that they're going to be met. And so they believe safe, the safe practice of medicine is absolute obedience to the college because otherwise the college doesn't have control. They can't ensure in their mind that medicine is being practiced safely if people don't obey. And so the danger in that uh, is the lack of belief, one, in, in a number of things. So one is the primacy of the doctor-patient relationship, which ensures that the patient's values and the patient's choices over their own health care come first, because that, that does leave op open the possibility that a patient will choose care or refuse care that is not necessarily safe <laughs> in some sense, right? They might choose not to go on insulin. A, a, a diabetic patient, the best choice maybe is for them to go on insulin, but they're going to choose not to do that. And will that doctor support that or will they kick them out of their practice, right? Like mostly insulin is not very, not, is not very politicized. So it doesn't see isn't typically an issue, but that's what we're running into with the vaccine, where it's very politicized and we need to get a, a vaccine in every arm is, is the idea there. And they believe doctors need to fulfill that expectation. So I do think in their mind, any doctor who who has ethics who and who publicly criticizes their dictates um, is a threat, is a threat to their power. And they, I don't, think they're necessarily malicious in that but in the in the mind of of a governor of a of any kind of government organization is that control is their only ability to to uh to affect change and so um it but i think it's fundamental to the practice of medicine they drilled that into us uh from medical school and we have a number of oaths that um that uphold that the purpose of an oath is that we uphold those ethics even under threat, even under obedience, even under the threat of loss of hospital privileges or of our license, because we put the patient first. Patient-centered medicine, um, uh, unfortunately, will like diverge from public health sometimes because of the patient's choice over their own body comes first and we're there to guide, we're there to guide patients to offer them options and they choose what fits best according to their values, even if it's unreasonable. That has always been the bedrock of medicine because it's about patient rights in that very intimate and very vulnerable situation, especially where patients are so sick, they're, they're so unwell, they need to know that their rights and their values are gonna come first. And that is fundamentally opposed to uh, the mindset of, uh, typical people who go into colleges who believe that they need to control, they need to get the optimal uh, treatment into every person's body, regardless of what the patient wants. And it's that fundamental aspect of choice that uh, means we need to allow a certain amount of freedom and a certain amount of people not choosing the what the quote unquote best 
evidence-based option uh, because mm. it's patients are have the right to make choices that aren't always the best. And Barry, if I could add to, to Patrick's answer um, about the, the the meaning of the public interest under the uh, regulated health professions act in Ontario, the minister of health, essentially the boss of, of all the colleges must act in the public interest. That's a legislative mandate. And the colleges themselves must act in the public interest. This is not some exhortation at the beginning of the legislation. It is right in, in the, the opening provisions of the legislation. So, but do the colleges act in the public interest? I can certainly say in, in the case of the college of physicians that they act in their own interest. And one of the reasons that, in other words, they have, they are always interested in expanding their power. If you leave any organization uh, without any fundamental supervision and, and legal restraints, of course, people are ambitious, people have their own agendas and their agendas for more power, more resources, more status will, will, um, will take precedence. And, and this is what has happened at the college. The minister does not police the college in the way that he or she, she sh should. Um, and so the college kind of runs wild. And, and then we have a second problem with the, with the colleges generally across the country, which is that doctors are represented by the Canadian Medical Protective Association, which um, is a, an insurance organization that provides legal assistance uh, to doctors for malpractice and in relation to the colleges. Doctors pay an annual premium for that. But what most doctors don't know is that the CMPA lawyers will not um, challenge the colleges on issues of jurisdiction or on charter issues. And so uh, when doctors are represented, and they are most of the time uh, represented by CMPA lawyers, the lawyers just accept the framework given to them by the college, even though it may be in violation of basic uh, legal norms and in violation of the charter, they accept it and work within it. And so doctors are not properly represented. The minister doesn't do his or her job. The CMPA lawyers don't do their job. And so what happens by default is that the wrong kind of people end up the colleges. They are the kind of people who are interested simply in increasing their power. And so then the whole system, um, you know, goes off the deep end. I think also as, in terms of the lawyers at the college, you know, the lawyers who work for the College of Physicians here in Ontario are, they, they're believers in big government. Um, they have bought into the idea that the administrative state is a good thing. More government is a good thing. So I think there's a, a basic cultural problem there in the kind of people who practice. And, and they tend to attract lawyers who are not concerned about first freedoms in the way that everyone here is. So I, I agree with everything, and this is a very um, sort of multifactorial issue um, because it's so complex. But if you look just simply at the college's actions, right, it tells everything that we need to know. And, and their actions, they have not at all made any adjustments or any um, changes to their recommendations based on new emerging evidence. So for instance, uh, the, vac the vaccines have been uh, clearly shown to have no um, uh, reduction of transmission and no influence on whether you get infected or not. And the college has not changed and not admitted that that is a fact. 
they were never studied for that. They have never mentioned that, but we all reviewed the study, so we knew. And the other issue is that when they start to come after physicians for not following recommendations, like as aggressively and uh, punitively as they have, um, this is a sign that, that they feel that they're losing control. And so their grip is tightening. And they have um, launched additional investigations against each and every one of us. Like I just had another investigation it launched against me a few days ago. And my license has been suspended for 10 months. So the futility of that, um, you know, for public interest is so obvious, but for their own self-interest, it may benefit them because they're trying to revoke my license. So you can clearly see that they're not, what they're not doing is what is for the patient's best interest or the public's best interest. There's a huge lack of communication, effective communication, and there's no conflict management. There's been no discussion or conversation in person or even on Zoom uh, with me. I'm not sure about anyone else, but to even discuss what my concerns are or anything, it's been a horrifying uh, power struggle. And I'm asking questions. I'm I want to make sure that the college has the authority to actually do what they're doing because I have committed no offenses um, and, and neither have my colleagues here. So they're fundamentally removing physicians who are practicing by the ethics of our profession and by the laws of our country in the medical treatment of human beings. And they're removing us because we're challenging their authority. And it's clear as day. So we have to look at their behaviors too. Yeah. So that, that raises a uh, excellent point here, this theme of the idea of authority. Um, it, it strikes me. I have a, a, a friend who uh, I've been, we, we've been friends actually since I was in law school, he was in med school. Um, I was in law school and um, uh, our families became good friends, um, you know, attended the same church and all that kind of thing. But anyhow, he he just recently is cut back on his practice as well. And um, he, I asked him, I said, like, has there ever been a situation where the medical associations would require any medical personnel to have a vaccine? He said, Barry, there wasn't even a requirement to have a flu vaccine ever um, that he's aware of in his many years of of experience. And it's like, all of a sudden, now the entire medical profession is forcing everyone to have this vaccine, or having a vaccines. Um, and it's, it's really, it's really problematic, as I'm listening uh, to each of you here now, and I'm thinking of those of you who are watching uh, on our program, like, how is it that we could get to a place where our own medical regulator is interested in its own position, and 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 uh, Michael, I I, um, I I come back to your statement as well that they're interested 
in their they they have their own interest. And so the question is, now that we have a situation where uh, you're saying that the minister is not doing uh, their job, the um, even the um, um, the medical association is not providing a check. So then it's only cases like this then that that are is is a check as it were on the power of the medical associations or of the the, the medical regulators. Yeah, but that's right Barry and that's where we <clears throat> we face a problem because of the inertia of the lack of uh, proper checks and balances um, uh, being placed on, on the college. And so everybody, you know, p people in positions of authority and even um, judges um, in our, um, at the divisional court and other parts of our legal system are just used to the college getting its way and they tend to accept and defer to what the college has got to say because it's an expert body and they don't want to call into question its expert, um, you know, decisions and recommendations. So when I come along and say, hey, wait a minute, this whole system is corrupt all the way around. And we forgot some fundamental arguments that should have been made a long time ago. Mm. Then uh, people are resistant to that. But we are arguing very basic things. We're arguing a Supreme Court of Canada case from 1953. We're arguing the most recent pronouncement of the Supreme Court on freedom of expression. We're arguing basic rules that have been in place um, you know, in some cases for over 100 years. The problems here are very evident and the legal principles that should be applied to solve those problems are also evident. But we are so far away from the um, application of the core principles of, of justice against these regulators that it is a very uphill battle. And so it, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, I would just think, Wow, some of these these arguments I mean, that we are making could be made by a first year law student. In fact, if you didn't make these these arguments, you'd flunk your constitutional law exam or your admin law exam. But we have a lot of trouble getting traction with them. The college doesn't want to hear them at all. And the courts are resistant to them. So it's a very, very bizarre situation to be in where the most basic principles that as lawyers and citizens we should stand for are not being recognized. Is this is this a um, as I'm as I'm listening to you? I'm thinking, going back to basics, are we? Uh, is this a societal problem in the sense of just basic honesty, basic truth of things? Uh, is it? Does it take us back to that? I think. Uh, well, yeah. I'll just make a comment because I'm sure everybody's going to say something about that. But I. I would say there's a failure of education in, our, I think, our professional schools, because I think we are training even lawyers uh, in, in ways that are very technical and technocratic. And people have lost the awareness of where their expertise lies in relation to um, our system as a whole, in relation to our first principles of justice. What does it mean to be a, a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor in a liberal democracy? I mean, I got that kind of education when I, was, uh, when I was in law school because I sought it out. But but we, we are not given really a, a context in professional uh, education um, for the application of our technical skills. And so I think that that's where the problem starts. 
um, is that we are putting um, experts into the system who have no framework within which to assess what they're doing. And so that's a very, very deep cultural problem. So it's, it's like you can have all kinds of knowledge, but if you don't have the wisdom, that seems to me to be the, the crux here. Exactly. Anyone else want to? Yes, go ahead. Just uh, pop something in. It's, it's because, you know, we're, we're focused on the legal side of this, but there's a physical uh, phenomenon that we're dealing with, and that's people's health. And the, we started with a virus, a SARS-CoV-2 virus, that was very similar in terms of how much harm it would cause. It's very similar to a moderate influenza. It didn't qualify by any means to any reasonable traditional definition of a pandemic. But by labeling it a pandemic, we, we came into a state of emergency. And in a state of emergency, which has been used through this actually that's been used a lot in the past by wicked authoritarians the state of emergency brings out a lot of a uh, new power and people hang on to that power so we started again with the virus with we you know it depends on the numbers but about less than 0.15 percent mortality so you know somewhere in the like under two and a thousand it presented zero significant risk of serious disease or death to children and, and even the oldest category, when we look, even people over 90 years old, 95% of them survived it without treatment. Now, as Dr. Hoff pointed out, we actually know how to treat it. Dr. Patrick was doing a great job of treating it until they, they took his license for doing it. But with the treatment, you reduce that mortality by 85%. So you, you get down to like, you know, one in 10,000 level of mortality, which makes it like a very mild end of a flu. So they blocked the treatment. Now, did we know the treatment worked initially? There was so much scientific evidence to say that was the way to go. But as things unfolded, as Dr. Hoff pointed out, we have now many studies that show dramatic effects. There are countries in the world that emptied their hospitals the moment they rolled out ivermectin. Like literally, look at this, the case of Uttar Pradesh in India. When they liberated this cheap, safe, effective medicine for the people, their hospitals went from full to empty within 48 hours. And this pattern happened a lot around the world. Meanwhile, in our province, the college kept their boot on the neck of doctors like Dr. Phillips and said, don't you dare treat COVID because we're in a state of emergency. and we, We're going somewhere. We're going to a high profit, deadly injection. And that's what I'd like to talk about really briefly, too, just to bring it back to the physical thing mm -hmm. that why us scientists are doing what we're doing and willing to put everything on the line for it. These injections, first of all, were never even, never even trial on people. Now, there's people like myself who from early on in this thing, I, I published a video in January 2021, said this is not a vaccine, and I've continued to publish since that time. Um, but a vaccine is an injection of up to 100 particles of a deadened or weakened version of the things you're vaccinating against. So that's what a polio or a tetanus mm -hmm. vaccine up to 100 units of a deadened version or weakened version of, say, the virus you're vaccinating against. These injections, right, these are high-tech, pegylated nanoparticles meant to penetrate every tissue in the body, even the brain, the ovaries, even cross the placenta into the mother and even make it into an unborn child's brain. Vaccines don't do that. And to boot, what do they contain? They don't contain 80 particles. 
They contain 40 trillion messenger RNA genetic messages that are inserted into human cells. And there, they make the human cells produce massive quantities of the toxin, which is the spike protein, a patented version. They're making a lot of money on a spike protein of the coronavirus that then poisons the body, then triggers an autoimmune response that the body attacks itself. And to boot, not only does it have a plethora of, of, of toxic effects from heart attacks to strokes and blood clots, but also diverts the immune system and creates profound failure of the immune system over time. And to boot, it doesn't help coronavirus as it makes it worse. And we knew that beforehand from pre-existing research. We've been ringing the bell for two years, no matter what they do to us. And Canadian data by May of 2021 showed that these injections increased, or sorry, 2022, that these injections made you way more likely to get sick with COVID. And we knew that. That's why we're ringing the bell. So imagine, they, they give you this injection. Two injections created a 2.5 times increase in serious coronavirus disease. Three injections, more than three times. And that's just for a warm-up. To boot, they have blown the records off anything that ever was called a vaccine in terms of how much death and harm they've caused. More like multiples more death from this injection from the US data than all injections for all uh, diseases for all of 30 years combined. I mean, we're not making this up, folks, right? So, and the college is coming along and saying, I'm not allowed to tell you that, or I'm not allowed to just open up. If you can find a pamphlet that isn't blank, because a lot of them come blank, literally, you, you pull out the insert of these injections that are called miscalled vaccines. And you open up and a lot of them are actually blank. I mean, how criminal is that? Why are we the ones on the stand? It's preposterous. So the college is, is telling you you can't use a safe and effective treatment for COVID. And then the college is telling you, you can't even tell people what's in the ingredients. Right. And then when you do say it, you say, well, look at the ingredients. It's a messenger RNA and a pegylated nanoparticle. It's a genetic experiment. And, and the college is making it their duty to say, shut up. Don't tell the people that and give them the jab and take one yourself. It's madness. You know, and I think it's this sense it of madness that is, uh, is causing us all uh, to become uh, very angry, I guess would be the way. I mean, it's becoming more and more uh, a point, you know, as society at large is going through this, and you folks are being the fall guys, as it were, uh, for what's happening. Um, eventually, as, as all of this starts becoming um, beyond repute, uh, and which it already is, but recognized by the public at large, um, it strikes me that uh, the regulators uh, will be in a very unenviable position uh, if the if the attitude is such that you know what you guys uh, let us down, and I, I I think there's I don't know I I hate the day for uh, to be in their position when people wake up to what's happening. I mean, th what you just shared right now is just mind blowing to me. Sorry, uh, Dr. Crystal, were, were you going to mention something or? I was I was going to just say that you know as all of the science that that we have um, seen accumulate over the last three years almost, 
um, you know, we use that information and we have a responsibility as physicians um, in our oath to inform the public honestly and be transparent when we have concerns. And there's been a lot of red flags, as Mark has uh, alluded to, in not just the vaccines, but in also the lockdowns and the harms that have happened from all of the policies that have been imposed, forced onto uh, the society at large. And it almost feels as though there's been a fundamental breakdown over time leading to this point where nobody really understands what their their rights are and physicians certainly don't know that we have rights and we've actually been told the opposite when we're in medical school and training uh you know just don't don't get any uh involvement with the college you don't want an investigation just do what they say and it's it, when we get to a situation that we're in right now where the college is is now the predator of the public and no longer the protector and we have no organizations that can help us, right? And we have all of this accumulating evidence, then we have to step up and, and take our rights back and empower ourselves and the public with the truth and the honesty around these concerns. These injections have caused very serious morbidity and mortality in our country and in countries around the world. And to be honest, uh, they would have been stopped if it was any other time. So there's influencing factors that we're not even sure of, but we have a duty to report concerns and part of informed consent is those concerns being addressed by these bodies and they're not. If I can just jump in there just to back Go up. Go ahead, uh, oh, Patrick. Um, yeah. I think I think Crystal's really right, and she she brought up a great point that uh, the CPSO increasingly is is becoming known in the public not as the protector of patient safety, but but as the perpetrator of medical atrocities. At this point, I know countless people who have lost their lives because they weren't able to get access to ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, or evidence-based care for COVID. They were brought into hospitals. Um, because of the erosion of informed consent, they would go into these hospitals even and tell them, do not give me remdesivir, which is known to uh, have a very high mortality rate through multi-organ failure, but especially kidney failure. They said no, and they, they waited until they became obtunded and then gave it to them anyway, and those, those patients died. And this happened time and time again in so many hospitals because of the fear, because doctors are told you must follow the protocol. And because, as well, visitor policies, which seem very benign, it's to protect people from getting COVID and spreading COVID into the hospitals, it removed people who are very vulnerable uh, from having their advocate by their side in receiving medical care. Uh, because their substitute decision makers weren't there, uh, physicians would often um, uh, make decisions for patients that often were against their explicit requests. And that, that just became the norm because there wasn't somebody by their side to advocate for them anymore and uh, and the whole culture has has uh, eroded informed consent um the colleges the public is well aware the colleges were the ones who announced pub 
unequivocally that you are not entitled to a, a medical exemption, except under ex our extreme circumstances. And the public is aware that uh, they are the ones that banned and took away their access to medical treatment. And so uh, we're seeing the evidence of this uh, in the college actually themselves. Uh, throughout all of our cases, they've actually uh, started redacting all of their names from all the documents. So I have no idea who even suspended my license or if it was even a person at all, uh, because they're afraid of their names getting out there. Um, and they've also just recently announced that they have banned public access to the college. Public are not no longer have the right to show up and to witness uh, the, the their proceedings in public uh, because they're afraid for their safety, because they get hundreds of emails a week of people who um, are very angry at the colleges. So we're seeing a shift happening uh, in the public and, uh, and even in the college themselves that they're no longer, they don't have that reputation anymore. They're seen as the enemy of, of patients' rights. And so uh, I do think when that reaches a critical mass, they're going to need to lose their authority, in my opinion. Well, you know what? Uh, so you have now confirmed what I just feared. Um, and something that I have heard other people talk about as well, and that is one of the one of the tragedies of this experience over the last couple of years is the fact that we've lost a lot of trust, uh, society lo losing a lot of trust in our professionals, i.e. our uh, medical professionals, but also our uh, courts and our um, is is a real concern. And and Michael, I'm going to come back to you, but I, I want uh, Dr. Hoff to just kind of jump in on this conversation as well. But so that I do not forget, I, I want Michael to ask you a question about the courts. Um, in British Columbia, for example, and in other courts, uh, they've they've made the the statement and the holding that, you know, they are not uh, scientists, they're not medical professionals, and therefore they're not going to be making any stand with respect to uh, the science of COVID. And yet, just a little while ago, the Supreme Court of Canada specifically said climate change is real. Those are the words. Climate change is real. Made a scientific uh, pronouncement for all of us to understand that so that climate change is real. But when it comes to COVID, it seems like the courts are are wanting to shy away. So I want to come back to that. But I want to come back to Dr. Hoff right now just to carry on with the conversation that we've just had with respect to um, uh, our regulators. Yes, thank you, Barry. I, I think what I, I would like to say is that this is an absolutely unique time in human history where we have watched every single or almost every single country across the entire planet follow this amazingly unscientific, illogical path of destruction um, of their economies, of their, of their, um, of businesses, of lives, of people being denied medical treatment for what has turned out to be one of the most easily treated viruses, as Dr. Phillips mentioned, of doctors, of ethical doctors being persecuted for, for wanting to treat people, which is what doctors are supposed to do. Uh, and, and, and so, and, and so not only have the colleges become the absolute opposite of what they're supposed to be, but the legal system has two, you know, the, 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 
doctors have an ethical duty to protect their patients and to protect the the public and and so do the colleges and yet the colleges have caused incredible harm by literally not allowing doctors to treat critically ill patients and have unfortunately a lot of lives that they are accountable for it, it is tragic right across the world but but not only is there a war against truth and in this war against truth i mean seriously i i think perhaps the clearest way to see it is that almost everything that the public health authorities have told us about covid has turned out to be untrue starting with the massive exaggeration of risk from from covid as dr trozzi mentioned you know it's about 1 in 2000 mortality rate and of course if you can treat it it's way better than that you know you you can save 80% of people uh, who who have died by literally just giving them outpatient treatment they didn't need to have died so and then of course the pcr test which was used to drive the fear by massively exaggerating the number of people who were supposedly sick many of whom weren't sick and 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 attributing um it just it was just used to pump up the numbers and then of course withholding you know saying there was no treatment and on and on the 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 media and and the health authorities have literally just spread a pack of lies there's literally a war against truth and any doctor who wants to speak the truth is punished and, and is told that they are speaking misinformation and so not only is there a war against truth but there also seems to be a war against justice where literally the where where the justice system is not what it used to be where where fundamental legal principles that we have stood on for generations are no longer being honored this is a peculiar time and i i i really see this in a spiritual role you know it, it, the bible tells us that satan is the deceiver of the nations and there is no other explanation for this we have seen a global deception and a, a global corruption like we have never seen before and the fact that this is so brutally um pursued with fear and intimidation speaks volumes and so that's my simple mm -hmm. comment this whole issue it is a war against truth and a war against justice can i mention one wow. thing just on the tail and, end and uh, i yeah okay go ahead mark yeah sure uh charles so bang on um with that i'd like to speak to uh any of our fellow humans who might be judges who may be listening to this and science society should be a democratic institution and in theory it is and we're trying to restore that But science is not a democracy. In other words, mm. it's not what nine out of ten people think makes it true. Science has solid pinnings. For instance, the science that ivermectin is an amazing treatment and safe for COVID. That's not an opinion. That's not like, you know, if if nine out of ten of us think that isn't true, it makes it not true. No truth is truth. You know, when Galileo dropped the two rocks off the tower and they hit the ground at the same time, people didn't expect that maybe, but that was then realized as the truth. And so the same with these injections, right? You don't have to spend three years studying it like we have. I mean, we could probably each one of us could write books on the subject. We know a lot about COVID, more than we can go into in this conversation for sure. But even if people do some of the basic things, like look at the ingredients, right? I've been, I've been multiple of us um, have been, you know, 
it's bizarre to see these things presented as insults in the media. They say, Dr. Trozian, Dr. Killian, and other doctors, these crazy people say that it's not a vaccine. It's a genetic experiment. Well, just read the ingredients. So I'm a, you know, because the, the ingredients is not what you put in a, in a vaccine, right? It's, it's what you, you put in a genetic high-tech experiment. So my, my, my thought to the judges who are deferring their responsibility at a deep level, and I get it because there's probably financial and career consequences to standing up and being a real man or woman and doing your job, which is to consider the evidence, right? Um, and as for the college and everyone else who's participated in this, they're, they are guilty of criminal neglect causing bodily harm and death because Pfizer's own studies, I mean, there's so much evidence. I could go into mountains, but I'm just going to try to hone in on one. Pfizer's own initial three-month clinical trial, which was available by the beginning of 2021, made it very clear that these injections killed way more people than COVID. It also made it very clear that these injections caused massive abortion and massive death of unborn children and women who were injected. Now, they can say, oh, well, we didn't know that because we watched the news and we believed what the news says. Well, no, 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 you can't do that. I can't watch the news and then just watch TV shows and go to the hospital and say, well, I saw a TV show said this is how to operate. So these people... For instance, Nancy Whitmore, the registrar of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, she's a doctor, right? She has a responsibility to at least read the ingredients, at least read one line. But, you know, really, I think she has even more responsibility than we do to actually have done her homework. And anyone who did their homework, if they neglected everything, if they slept through this whole thing and they only woke up at the beginning of 2021 and read the Pfizer initial, initial three-month trial data, they would have saw that these injections were deadly. And at that point, every single one of them who continued to persecute, for instance, anybody who stood against the agenda, they're guilty of crimes. They want to take our licenses? Okay, but listen, folks, these people need to go to jail because they have committed criminal neglect and they have caused massive suffering by obstructing the treatment of COVID and even more massive suffering and death by telling doctors, if you dare open your mouth and tell people what's in the bottle, we're going to take your license. And unfortunately, a lot of doctors went along with it, which is a sad thing. But people, if we don't stand up to this, everybody loses everything. And anyone who thinks you're on the inside, mm. well, I'm a judge, well, I'm a doctor, or they're not going to take my stuff. You need to do some homework. You know, uh, excellent points. Excellent points, and um, it's it's a key a key moment right now because um, and and Dr. Hoff, I, I just want to echo uh, your your sentiments exactly. I I, um, I I just see see this as a fundamental breakdown of the glue that held us together as a society when we had a common understanding that, you know what, you speak the truth, you don't worry about whether or not you lose your job or whether or not you're going to be embarrassed because I, I'm thinking perhaps uh, as evidence is, becoming, uh, is coming more and more and as these colleges are now uh, is finding the pressure, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Patrick, with respect to they're not even allowing the public to see what they're supposed to, what normally you would see because it's a public body. Um, uh, it seems to suggest that uh, 
there is some some fear uh, developing within the regulatory agency. So I, I want to come uh, to you, Michael, on my question and my thought with respect to the courts and how they have been uh, to date uh, been. Um, you know, we we've we see one or two cases in the family loss context where um, when they're fighting over uh, custody of children, uh, there have been situations where some parents have been able to uh, say, OK, I do not want my child to receive a vaccine, that kind of a thing. And the court has agreed uh, when when there's been a dispute between the parents. But generally speaking, um uh, there have been no cases that I'm aware of, and perhaps you can enlighten us if there have been, where the courts have uh, come out and said, okay, hey, you know what, we're going to look at this. Because so far, uh, the courts have been frightened to death of getting involved in the COVID issue, whereas they have no problem, it seems, getting involved in the climate change science. Right. Well, you know, to, to be a judge in Ontario, <clears throat> you have to have at least two uh, injections. So, you know, there's, there's a basic bias on the court. Um, uh, Justice Pazaratz talked about this in the family law case where he attacked the idea of misinformation and what a ludicrous idea it is because it is, it is essentially an appellation that's, that's designed to shut down debate and prevent uh, spirit debate within the courtroom. So it, it, misinformation is a term that we should never use in our judicial system, but it gets tossed around all the time right now. Um, so, you know, the, the yeah. we... There, an argument could be made that there's already bias in the court system because people don't want to admit to themselves, the judges, that they may have done a wrong thing in taking the injections. So this is this is a structural problem that we face. But the divisional court in Ontario, which is responsible for reviewing the decisions of the administrative body, um, is really in the pocket of the administrative state and has been for quite some time. And they've just ramped up their position that way. And so they're always somewhat reluctant to call into question uh, decisions made by expert administrative bodies. There is this doctrine of deferring to the expertise of specialized bodies, which the College of Physicians is. And they have just expanded that doctrine to the point where we cannot get meaningful review of a decision. So this is a kind of ideology that has creeped into the system, where we have a general idea, a doctrine that is no longer, that no longer corresponds with the reality of the situations that are brought before the courts. And so in some ways, I mean, I, I think one solution to the problem is simply to abolish the visual court, because I don't see that it's that it's doing its job now. And I don't think it's been doing its job for quite some time. But our point here is that the issues that we are bringing before the court are issues of law. They're not issues of science. We're asking the court to weigh in on the meaning of reasonable and probable ground. In Ontario, you have to have reasonable and probable grounds, a well-recognized legal term, before you can initiate an investigation. We are saying the colleges, not just the, the College of Physicians, but many colleges in Ontario, are in violation of that basic standard. They've conducted investigations or proceeded to prosecutions that don't meet that legal standard. The standard of practice is also a legal standard. There is a formula in the legislation of Ontario for setting the standard of practice. It's a legal term of art. So you can challenge the colleges on whether they've met the legal requirements. Or in, if you want to suspend somebody, then you have to have um, meet a, a, a legal standard, again, of probability. before There must be a probability of patient harm before you can suspend somebody's license. 
These are all legal issues. They're not issues that are within the province of doctors as doctors. So the court should be addressing those. And that is where the real unreality sets in, is that in the, the, the courts are not doing their job addressing these uh, basic legal terms and what they mean. And uh, they're just saying, no, 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 that's within the expertise of the college. And it obviously is not. Okay, so here, here we are. Um, I wonder one more uh, question out here. It seems to me um, as well, there's a, a situation, or I wonder, as evidence is becoming um, very clear, uh, that what the, uh, what the college has been promoting, there's a lot of issues with respect to it. Is it that we've, we've, these bodies are now so deep in their position that even if it were an entitled tsunami of evidence coming, that it would indeed be like Galileo, and they would say, "Sorry, but we're not we're, we're not going to change because it's too uh, we're on we're in this too deep to to get out now." Or do we have confidence that uh, when when there is this overwhelming amount of evidence that the come back and say, "Sorry, guys, I made a mistake." I mean, there's lots of legal issues on that because. Uh, what we just talked about, uh, you know, the um, the entire uh, idea of having a duty of care and all the rest of it. Um, what are your thoughts on on why we got this intransigence? Well, if I may jump in for a moment, Barry, the title of evidence is already here, right? Insurance okay. mortality data shows. If you look at if you look at death rates around the world over the last year, many years. What you see is that in 2020, when they claimed everyone dying of COVID, it was this pretty much the same old amount of dying. And what you see is as soon as they roll out these misrepresented injections, dying goes up. It doesn't go up a little bit. It goes up a lot. It goes up more than it does during a world war. So, and, and the, the endpoint mechanisms, cancer, blood clots, heart attacks, strokes, lots of things. And they kind of spread it around and try to make it look like it isn't that. And then in many countries like Canada, they deny proper autopsies, which show it. Like Dr. Birkhardt in Germany, they took 15 for beginner, 15 people who died all over the months and, and, and up to a year after the injections. The public autopsy said nothing to do with the injection, just like the ones in Canada. But when someone actually took the tissue samples and did the proper techniques, did what's called immunofluorescent staining for spike protein, what you saw was clearly these people died from that injection. Right. So the tsunami of evidence is already here and you can find that tsunami. It's like an elephant. It's very hard to hide it. You can look at it from data point mm. of view. You, you can look at it by just walking around, talking to your neighbors. Hey, you know, anybody died this year? You know, anybody died this year? You know, so so the tsunami's already here. Um, and in terms of what to do, like, you know, Charles mentioned something. There's a spiritual element to this. There's a very old word called repent. And we're at that point. And I think with the colleges, I mean, for sure, some of these people are going to have to go to prison. There's no, I mean, if, we, if we're a sane society, somebody's, there's got to be some justice. There's way too many dead and injured people and way too many human rights denied, and way too much destruction of our economy. And even too many professional psychologists, nurses, doctors who've lost their livelihood for trying to do the right thing, right? But I think the other side of this is <clears throat> people should, 
Well, I know right here with this, I'd rather be standing on salt tooth than sand, standing on a pile of money with sand underneath it. And that's where a lot of people are at, right? And so if you're working at the college, I think what you need to do is you need to step away from the people who are really devote to this thing and you need to turn and join the good guys. It's happened before. Italy switched sides during at the end of the Second World War. Remember, they were with the Germans and then they said, oh, we ain't doing this. And the people took Mussolini and strung him up and said, no, we're not part of this anymore. We're, we believe in human rights. So I think there's redemption for a lot of us. Prisons aren't big enough. And God, we don't like everybody's been thrown so much mental abuse. It's no wonder people have like are doing crazy stuff. But people need to wake up. People need to repent if you're in these positions of power. And the people at the college who refuse to make the path, the people who are at the top of this, the people who have way too much blood on their hands to just go home, you need to isolate them. You need to help us investigate them and, and, and bring back the rule of law and justice. Because no matter what your position is, no matter like me, okay, yeah, did I lose my income? Did I sell my house? Is my family living a much more impoverished relative lifestyle than we had before? Yeah, but... It doesn't matter because if we let this thing keep going, we're we're checking our grandchildren into a place that's a dystopic hell, right? So uh, mm. that that would just be I just like you know we always okay. got to call that, it to people I, on the I'm other side. Yeah, go ahead. No, sorry. I, I just I know that uh, Dr. Hoff, you have to leave, and I'm just wondering if you have any final comment mm -hmm. that you would like to share with our viewers. Yes, I, I think, yeah, unfortunately, I've got to go and speak at a medical attorney protest and I've got a four hour drive to get there. Um, so my, 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 my closing comment is that just to quote one of my favorite people who is Edmund Burke, who was a 17th century mm. British uh, politician, actually, who said that all that is needed for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. This, it is the people who can see that there is something seriously wrong and who do nothing because they are afraid or they think they can't do anything are part of the problem. We all need to be part of the solution. Otherwise, we will be part of the problem. If people keep silent, this whole massive war against truth and war against justice just barrels on. This is a war against humanity. And we are unfortunately... Everyone is involved, whether or not they realize it or not. This is a global war against humanity. So this is a time for, for boldness. This is the fight of our lives. People need to stand up and be counted. They need to be writing letters of complaint to their colleges of physicians and surgeons for the, the persecution of ethical doctors. They need to be calling their political leaders to account for the, for the injustices and the lies that they have been told. This is a time for courage. And that, those are my closing words. It, it is essential that everybody, literally everybody can do, you know, we, we, people say, well, what can I do? You know, I can't do everything. You can't do everything, but you can do something. And that's what you need to do. Even if it's just writing a letter to your college of physicians and surgeons, confronting them on this issue of the persecution of ethical doctors, uh, this, this, this massive overreach of power, this, this corruption at the highest level, this is a time for action. Okay, great. Well, thank you so very much, Dr. Hoff. And uh, I'll, uh, you know, just thank
Thank you so much for for taking the time to be with us today. And um, I um, I just want to thank you for being here. And I'll open it up to uh, to all the rest to give uh, a final statement that you would like to to leave with the viewers as well. Uh, sorry, Bert. Uh, okay. Just to address the previous question, which is. Um, you know, essentially, you know, have things gone too far? Where, where, where can we go next with this? And the problem that we're having in Canada and is not endemic to Canada. These problems have been uh, encountered in other Western nations. The, U, the situation in the UK with the College of Physicians abusing its power uh, became so great that the government decided to abolish the college and uh, brought the whole matter uh, back into government rather than delegate it to, to a special regulatory body. And that's been done in a couple of other European countries as well, the Nordic countries. But uh, so we don't have to have these regulatory arms um, oppressing us in this way. And one way is simply perhaps to get rid of them. I was a consultant to the foreign government in 2019, but the reform of the colleges, uh, unfortunately none of my recommendations were acted upon but at that time, there was a discussion going on as to whether uh, the College of Physicians should be abolished. Uh, so uh, that is one solution. That's a, that's a political solution. Um, and uh, so, and I just, um, if I could just mention uh, too as well, we are trying to raise money for our legal fight here. Um, if if anybody is interested in helping us, uh, we have run out of money. Uh, a lot of us have been fighting this for months and months um, on our own dime. And uh, we need more money to, to fight this in the system, to hire people, to get expert reports and so on. And uh, so and, if people- where would, like would to, they go to- uh, If you go to- Where would they the, uh, go to donate? Uh, takeactioncanada.ca is the organization that is helping us with fundraising. So if you go to the Take Action Canada website, You'll see a little window there. Uh, you can click on it, and we would appreciate any donation, no matter how large, how small, uh, to assist us in uh, continuing to fight this within the courts. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, so I would like to just kind of address the idea of whether um, if somebody has, you know, been involved in some nefarious activity at the college, if they are likely to turn that around and become uh, honest people with integrity. Um, I, I'm hopeful because I believe that everyone has the capacity, um, but that requires um, radical yeah. honesty, self-honesty and reflection and understanding what your role uh, in all of this has been. Um, and that's really hard to do, especially when the consequences of the college's actions. And um, it's not just Dr. Whitmore, it's the investigators and the, uh, the committee members that were involved in persecuting us as well. So do I believe that after all of the chances that we've given them uh, to work through these enormous legal issues um, and we've tried to you know, bring forth uh, communication around them. I don't know that they're going to make the right decision. Um, and they're actually doubling down in their actions. Um, and now they're trying to protect themselves even further by 
shutting out the public even more. Uh, these are not good signs that they have good, you know, a, a good faith approach here. Um, so I'm extremely doubtful that that will happen. Um, and like Mark said, they're probably going to have to be investigated themselves and will have to face the consequences of the decisions that they have all made. Um, and so my last words to everybody and colleagues and judges and the public is really to have an honest look at the entirety of the situation. A virus does not cause uh, civil unrest and um, dysfunction within society. Human behaviors do. And if we want to have a functioning democracy that under, you know, the underpinnings of that are equality and uh, justice and fairness, um, then we really have to uh, get back to those principles. The people in the college as the regulators, they're human beings the same as we are. Nobody's superior to one another. They're functioning upon a different set of rules, it seems. We cannot allow that any further. And, you know, our, our backs have been carrying all of this for two years. We've been attacked and investigated and my practice has been destroyed. All of our livelihoods have been destroyed. Our families have been uh, stressed to the max. Um, you know, it's time for people to step up and really look at this whole situation honestly and, and look to see who's being transparent and open and honest and who's not. And trust the people that are trustworthy and not those that are showing you deceitful actions um, such as the college. And I, I think the the personal the personal weight that you have have borne on this issue is something that I think we all need to to recognize and appreciate because it's you know it's very difficult for anyone to stand up and um, and speak truth and speak truth to powers we often hear and uh, to see the sacrifices that you have made, Dr. Patrick. Yeah, just to, to follow up on, on the other's excellent words. Um, I, I, I do want to encourage people because I do believe that we are in a moment here. Um, I don't know if it was Elon Musk kind of breaking the, um, uh, the censorship on Twitter. Uh, but it's not just Twitter because it's it's allowed that one channel to open. And so we've seen doctors restored on there who have been speaking truth for a long time and it's been censored. So what we're witnessing, uh, it's hard to see always, but what's happening is there is a breaking point <clears throat> that's coming. People are becoming more aware of the truth, uh, of uh, the importance of having medical freedom. Uh, they're seeing the truth of these institutions that are more interested in preserving their own power than, uh, than preserving the rights and the health of the public. And uh, some see that as a, a loss, but maybe that's the good thing. Maybe actually the more trust we lose in them, the more we're going to realize that these institutions maybe weren't serving us in the first place or not in the way that we intended. And that'll create the social impetus to create change. So, um, so what, but 
what we're seeing on the other side of that is these institutions are becoming aware of that and they're clamping down. They're realizing their power is being threatened. They're realizing the public is turning against them, which is why they're banning the public from these, from even the halls of what is used to be the halls of justice, in, or at least that, that's the way it was perceived. And so uh, we're, we are going to see governments, we're going to see these colleges lashing out more uh, because they are losing that control and they're losing that uh, that uh, uh, support of the public. I'm not going to say the majority don't support them, but a good chunk and much more than than before. Uh, and so that's going to grow. And so a lot of we might uh, be tempted to lose hope when we see these organizations become more and more tyrannical, more and more harmful. Uh, whether it's government, whether it's the courts, whether it's colleges, um, but we are at that breaking point. So I encourage everybody to speak out, find your voice. Speak out in your community because a good chunk of the population is aware of the harms of the vaccines. They're, they all know somebody who's died from the vaccine or been injured in some way. Um, and so now is a moment, while you might be tempted to be apathetic, uh, people are becoming more and more receptive to that level of truth. And so your words will become more and more influential as that happens. And it'll eventually reach that breaking point of maybe having to create something new hopefully it does, doesn't become violent or anything but but i do think just reaching that 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 impetus will create that uh, ability to change and hopefully through political means hopefully through a uh, a safe uh, and peaceful transition of power uh, and hopefully get the political will to either abolish these institutions uh, and allow some more freedom or reform them in a in a way that allows patient freedom, because that's really, our cases are not about us. They're about the rights of patients to receive treatments. They're about the rights of patients to refuse treatments. Uh, and it's about bodily autonomy. Uh, so I encourage you to not lose hope. We're going to see some more destruction, but, um, but take this moment and realize that your words are gaining power as time goes on. Well, I think if I, <clears throat> I'd like to take this opportunity and just offer you know, fellow Canadians, some just decent basic health advice. So what makes a healthy immune system? Well, be well hydrated, have an active lifestyle, be physically active, eat a natural diet, which is, which is you know, abundant with fruits and vegetables. If it's wintertime like now and you can't get sunlight, take some vitamin D. It's one of the biggest determinants of resistance to disease. And then as for all of our loved ones who have been injected, <clears throat> who have been coerced, who have been lied to, and now their very existence denied in the cases of the people who've been injured, not denied by us. So there are things that can be done to help detoxify from this toxin. And so for that, I would recommend people go to the worldcouncilforhealth.org and look at the spike protein detox guide. And, and of course, I invite people to come to the worldcouncilofhealth.org for lots of useful information on their health and on what's going on. And my own site, drtrozy.org, where you can find a lot of information. If you're curious about what's in these <clears throat> injections that are being called vaccines, I've built a library there, uh, not just of my material, but of material of others, including my colleagues here. But let's, let's deal with the situation and let's also take care of our health. And, and that includes helping the people who have been coerced and many are already feeling the negative effects, please get on a spike protein detoxification program. Okay, thank you. And Michael, as we look at the legal issue, 
and uh, any hints uh, for people as they are listening to this program, hearing about this case. There's many other cases ongoing as well, uh, but uh, what would you like to share? Well, I, I think we're facing what, what they like to call in the media uh, an existential moment because wherever I go in this country, um, the rule of law is no longer respected. Go to Health Canada, they're not within the bounds of their statutory authority. Go to the colleges, they're way out of bounds. Um, I just, <laughs> I've been dealing with some cases on the municipal level where municipal officials and, and police officers are making decisions behind the scenes about people's lives that they have no business making. If I were to choose Time uh, Magazine's Person of the Year, it would just be a profile of a face, but no features. The problem we're facing in the West right now is the rule of the faceless bureaucrat. And the rule of law, democracy have been subverted. It's been done before, but now it's become the norm. And so, uh, these cases that we're fighting, this is just one avenue that we're pursuing. If we get before the right judge or the right panel of judges on the right day, given the principles that we are arguing, if we win on one of these cases, this could be a game changer for the entire country. If we don't win in the courts, we are going to have to use other strategies to try to vindicate the rule of law and democracy. And, and we're all involved in, in a multifaceted approach. I'm involved in some criminal investigations. We're obviously involved in advocacy and communication strategies, which is why we're here talking with you today. Uh, I can't go into everything that we're doing, but it's going to take people working on a number of different levels to turn back the tide of the administrative state and the deep state. So I, I really, I'm not trying to be melodramatic. I truly believe based on my experience that, um, we are looking at a change in regime if we do not um, uh, find a way to uh, reverse the current trend. And so on that basis, I just hope people will, will take a strong interest and uh, act in many different ways to try to bring back um, a true democratic form of government. Well, folks, I just want to thank you so very much for sharing today. This has been very powerful, very enlightening, and it's certainly one that... Uh, I know our viewers uh, will find not only uh, interesting, but it's informative. And yet, at the same time, it, it shows the gravity of the situation in which we find ourselves in this country. And so I want to thank each and every one of you. I want to thank you for the sacrifices you're making. And uh, we uh, please provide me with all of your contact information, email it to me, and we will put that up on our website so that uh, folks who have been watching this will be able to contact your organizations. And folks, I want to thank you for taking the time to spend with us today as we talked about this uh, war on truth. And it is something that uh, we uh, have to take responsibility for individually. And uh, our guests today have shared with us how we may be able to do that. And I recognize that not everyone is going to agree with the opinions expressed by my guests or by me. And that's okay, because on this program, we are interested in open, honest, and transparent dialogue. And until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. 
Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca